You're listening to the Inner Field Trip Podcast, designed to help highly sensitive people and deep feelers explore unconscious biases so they protect their energy, stand on the side of justice, and become better ancestors. My name is Lisa Renee Hall, your host and tour guide. The guest who I'm interviewing on this episode, I've known her for quite some time. I first came across her work in 2005 when a colleague pulled out her book called Multiple Streams of Coaching Income. What intrigued me was that he said that the book was in beta and the book was published with an all-black cover. So of course, that was very intriguing to me. I read her book and I was floored because at the time, I was trying to be a coach. And most people were sharing that in order to be a successful coach, you need to coach people one-to-one. In other words, they pay you hundreds of dollars a month and you have four one-hour sessions once a week over that month-long period. But somehow that model just didn't align for me. And so when I was meeting with my colleague and he told me about her book, I went online to order a copy. I had to wait until the official copy was released. And when it was, I was not disappointed. I can honestly say that the book Multiple Streams of Coaching Income totally revolutionized the coaching industry. It gave countless of other ways with actual case studies of how coaches were redefining the ways in which we could make money through coaching. And that really is who Andrea J. Lee is. Andrea is a futurist. She's a forward thinker. I am as well. I consider myself to be a forward thinker as well, but I'm always way too early. For example, I was in the podcasting field back in 2005 when it was introduced, 2006, 2007, and by 2008, I became bored. I mean, I even wrote a book called Podcasting for Profit, and when that was published, It signaled my exit from the podcasting field. It took another 10 years for the market to catch up. And now podcasting is all the rage. And so that's me. I'm five to 10 years too early. But Andrea, as a futurist, is always on time. And I like to tell her that she's like Gandalf. Never too early, never too late. Always at the right time. Since reading her book back in 2005, I've continued to be in her ecosystem. I've always followed her advice because, like I said before, she's on time. And the person who was my mentor for so many years has become my friend. And we often have conversations over the phone about the state of the world and the state of what's going on. In particular, I was particularly interested in Andrea's work around tough and difficult emotions. She released a short video about anger and abuse, and it was seen over 2 million times. And so as I watch Andrea's work evolve, I wanted to bring her on this podcast to talk about difficult conversations and anger, especially because it relates so well to the world of anti-racism, anti-bias, and becoming anti-oppressive. That sometimes when we are going through our own awakening, we want to invite family members and friends and colleagues into the awakening as well. But those conversations can become tough and angry and frustrating. And so Andrea's advice around that is so key. 
And I know you're going to learn a lot from her on the ways in which you can navigate those tough conversations. Here's a little bit more about Andrea. Andrea J. Lee is a futurist with her finger on the pulse of the human spirit and how it can change the world. She's the founder of Thought Partners International, a service business delivering customized, high-touch coaching, training, and consulting. Most often, she works with executives, small business owners, and other leaders, helping them break new ground and make great money in aligned ways. Throughout her life, Andrea has done one thing, help the people she cares about achieve what they think is impossible. Not once, but twice, she helped reinvent the coaching profession and knows one thing for sure, humanity is essentially good and astonishingly powerful. Andrea is a trusted source of coaching innovation, a force for change in the field of emotional abuse, and her business was named an extraordinary bull market company by Seth Godin and Fast Company Magazine. Her writing about societal violence and emotional abuse has appeared in the Washington Post and a short selfie video recently gathered over 2 million views on Upworthy.com. You can find out more about Andrea by going to www.andreajlee.com. Andrea, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me, Mifa. <laughs> and as I shared in the introduction, we've known each other for so long. <laughs> yes, since we were children, right? Since we were children, <laughs> according to the internet years. <laughs> and so the question I always like to start off with, with all my guests, is to tell me who you bring into your work. In other words, who are the ancestors in your lineage, both living and passed on, who inform what you do? Well, I am Taiwanese. So, you know, the joke is that I was almost made in Taiwan because my parents were <laughs> <laughs> immigrated from Taiwan to Canada. And so my ancestors are Taiwanese, culturally speaking. And it's very interesting because Taiwan, just two generations ago, was occupied by the Japanese for 50 years. So my parents had Japanese names and grew up learning Japanese. And my grandparents were very much grappling with that occupation in their lives and did business with the Japanese. And I consider my origin story to be one of what it means to be Taiwan in the face of China. Taiwanese people will talk about if China sneezes, Taiwan catches a cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so what it means to be the little guy, what it means to be occupied by the Japanese forces. I also feel very strong ties to ancestors in the coaching field. My roots of learning what coaching was from Thomas Leonard and who he learned from, which was a lot from the accounting field and from the therapy field and the early days of the personal development field. So I feel like I have roots in there too. And I also, more recently, because I was born in Canada, I feel more of a connection now to the land that we are living on now because there's a very strong Native Canadian influence where we live. Apparently, the island that I live on used to be a summer camp for the Comox and Pentlatch tribes. So there's some really nice, roots here. We can walk in the forest and see some of the history of the island. And 
I feel really touched by that and really privileged to to breathe that in with, you know, with every tree that I see, I get to, to think of that and be reminded of that. I know a lot of the lands in British Columbia are unseated. Yep. So given the lineage that you come from, where your cultural being Taiwanese and being yeah. marginalized by Japanese who came in and colonized and so on, what emotions emerge for you being on these unceded lands of individuals who did not have a choice in giving up the lands that were theirs before the colonizers and settlers came along? Yeah, the emotions are definitely grief, like a deep sort of loneliness that I, I think it's not a personal loneliness, like I feel lonely, but it's more like a humanity losing its way kind of feeling of loneliness that these cycles repeat themselves. And in so many different places, there's barely a square inch on the planet that has not experienced some kind of oppression of this kind from the land up, kind of more on a daily basis, not emotional, but not quite sort of over-intellectualized either. It's conflicted and feeling like such a paradox, and it really goes to the heart of what matters to me around power and how thin the boundary can sometimes be between being oppressed and being the oppressor. So it's bittersweet and tender to think about how white settlers brought the chicken pox to this island and then large portions of the native population were wiped out here locally because of that and very, very heart sore and heartbreaking if I let myself go there. Yes. And so as a second generation Canadian, yes? Yes. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. And being raised <laughs> by immigrant parents. How has that shaped who you are and your relationship to Canada? And in what ways did your immigrant parents not prepare you for life in Canada? I don't know if there is like a playbook or a manual for immigrant parents who try to (laughs) create a better world and go to a new country that says this is how to prepare your children and this is what it will be like to be in between countries for themselves, for my parents themselves who are caught in between. So it is one of those under-discussed topics that what the immigrant experience and all that it contains within it, I think it contains multitudes of again, paradox and conflict and heartbreak and attachment and letting go. Personally, I think that I have a lot of patience for difficult discussions because really that's what we had. We had a lot of really hard discussions, sometimes very heated and sometimes at the top of people's lungs. I remember very (laughs) clearly a lot of yelling. And I don't know if that's entirely to be attributed to the immigrant story. But I think that the parts that I am very grateful for, I'm very grateful for all of it because I wouldn't be here today alive even if they hadn't chose what they chose. But they're very hardy people. They're very brave. (laughs) Yes, I agree. Giant risk, right? You get it. You know, we have similarities in our stories in some ways. Yes. Like, I don't even understand how they, do you just take a deep breath, button your shirt and just go? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm kind of brave, I think I can say. And I think I get that from them. I think I don't really know how not to do something sometimes. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it does due to their guidance and their Mm -hmm. courageousness. Mm -hmm. Because I agree, like most likely their first language wasn't English. Right. And so now they have to adapt not only to a new country, but also a new language and raise children at the same time. Ah, Right, right. And my parents, because of the occupation, they had an experience of injustice, specifically a business deal that went wrong on my dad's side of the family. My dad's side had a lumber, I'll call it a business, (laughs) a lumber mill in their family. And they had a deal with Japanese military, which they went all out on and they, you know, had to take risks, financial risks in order to fulfill. And then the Japanese declined to follow through and based on the technicality of the wood not meeting a standard. Ironically, it's supposed to be white wood, but the wood had knots in it. And so they used the fact that the knots were not white to get out of the contract and left this deal standing with my dad's family's mill. And so they went bankrupt and the whole thing. And I bring that up because to your question, I hadn't made this connection yet. And when I did, I was kind of like, huh, well, no wonder I have the stomach for sometimes protracted negotiations. (laughs) 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 No wonder I am like pretty eagle eyed about boundaries and making sure expectations are set and I try to over-communicate, look around the corner for blind spots. I say, well, no wonder, right? So yeah, that's one example of how I feel like their DNA and their experience shows up in me. And so your lineage passed on courageousness and diligence, and -hmm. those are admirable traits. Mm -hmm. And from a generational standpoint, What is something that has been passed on that has been toxic? Yeah, it's definitely like anger, like very deep-rooted, like anger is not an adequate word here. It's rage at the injustice of life and how things can happen in life when you're living during an occupation. Yeah, anger had its grips on me for a long, long time. I was not conscious of how feeling victimized had given me a sense of entitlement that it would be okay to take a turn at being the bully, at being the jerk, at being the oppressor. I thought it was a natural outcome of when a victim of abuse and anger and injustice has their day in the sun. Okay, great. I'm no longer a victim. Now it's my turn to be a bleephole. And that was very much a legacy on my dad's side. And I remember when I first discovered you, it was when Multiple Streams of Coaching Income was launched as a beta. Mm -hmm. And it was a colleague here in Toronto that showed me the book. And I was just like, oh, that's interesting. (laughs) And so that was the first in a long line of resources that you put out there in the marketplace that totally changed the way coaches think about building their businesses. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Thomas Leonard before. And you were the general manager, Coach Phil. Mm -hmm. And when he passed away unexpectedly in 2003, a few years later, you stewarded his intellectual property. Mm -hmm. And I also, I love the way your mind thinks around, I like to call you Gandalf because you're never (laughs) too early. You're not too late. You're just on time. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) 
Well, thank you. That's a pretty big compliment. And I yeah. love to quote Gandalf. So that's perfect. Yeah. So I always love to peek in on what you're doing because <laughs> unlike me, where I'm like five to 10 years too early, you're just on uh. time. <laughs> and so I mention all of this because then I see a video come out where you're talking about anger and abuse. Mm-hmm. And to me, it seemed like a big departure. Mm-hmm. So what was that moment for you that said, this is something I have to share? Yeah, I think that in society, in mainstream culture, we have this story that abuse is something that only happens in small pockets, like on some island far, far away to other people. And the most common reaction people have to that anger video that I put out is like, I can't believe it. You seem so kind and soft-spoken. And and so that surprise and that reaction, I think, is at the heart of what I am trying to get out in the world, but sort of that the inner reason. I think that as humans, we can't help but always be somehow, like you like to say, the perfect word, stumbling with our power in the use of it towards each other, with each other, at each other. So coaches. How might we be being like abusive or like in between the lines, angry and taking things out on people around us, oppressive behavior and so on? It's not an inquiry that I think should surprise us. I think it's an inquiry that we need to embrace. So to be a little bit concrete, I was talking to a coach the other day who talked about the chagrin they had when they realized that they had been really a bully to their virtual assistant. They hadn't realized it, but they had. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I remember when Thomas Leonard passed away, when the whole schmoggle of what's going to happen now was happening, there were legal proceedings that occurred that were absolutely violent and did not take care of the people involved, myself included. And when we walk around in the world thinking, oh, there's no abuse of power happening. I'm just having my regular day and here's my coffee and here's my cell phone. And so we're not interrogating those things to ask, where is the oppression? Where is the violence? Where is the abuse? We have our eyes half shut or more. So that's the connection. It may seem like it's remote, but for me, it's very present in every action that I take. Every time that I coach someone and ask them, Well, your decision about how you treat that client, where's the oppression in that? Where's the justice in that? Where's the humanity in that? I love that. And I especially love when you said that people would say to you that, hey, Mm -hmm. you're so nice. You're so soft-spoken. How can Mm -hmm. you be so angry? Mm -hmm. Why is that nuance allowed? Why should we not be surprised? Why should we not be surprised? Well, where is it written Where is the proof? Where is the evidence that a soft-spoken person cannot also be a jerk? (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) And where is it written and where is the proof that a jerk cannot also sometimes be soft-spoken? Yes and, right? Like we live in such a binary-seeking world because we seek certainty. It's kind of very irritating, right? And I do this too. Please, like, let me not exempt myself. I want it to be yes or no. I don't want it to be maybe. What do you mean? It's another maybe or it depends. It's very annoying. (laughs) But that's really where our learning is. 
no matter what the topic, what the big societal topic, the nuances is where our humanity's growth is. And so we should not be surprised that there is bad behavior coming from a soft-spoken person. Bad behavior exists in all of us. And we should not be surprised when someone who maybe seems evil in many other ways also does something kind. We should not be surprised at either of those things. There's a door number three. (laughs) Door number three. Yeah. And we're going to find out what's behind door number three (laughs) after we come back from the sponsored message. I'm in conversation with Andrea J. Lee, founder of Thought Partners International, and we'll be right back. My name is Miranda Wildman, and I'm a painter, art magic workshop host, and welcoming space maker. I have to admit, when I first started supporting Lisa on Patreon, I didn't really know what to expect. As a white woman, I felt that if I supported a Black woman on Patreon, then I would be relieved of some of my guilt when it comes to racism and my role within racist systems. However, as time progressed and I started to engage and work with Lisa's inner field trip more often, I realized there was much more to a Patreon relationship like this than a simple monthly transaction to appease my ego. Lisa's combination of guided prompts and stream of consciousness writing have helped me to unpack biases around racism, ableism, and sexism. Before meeting Lisa, along with my awareness of racism and my role within white supremacist systems, I felt an extreme urgency to fix things right away. Writing through Lisa's reflective writing prompts, unfolding deep and unknown layers in my consciousness, I slowly but surely realized that the urgency to abolish racism is very clear. But if I approach doing so with urgency, then I would be missing some very important steps. These urgent actions would not be sustainable and could actually perpetuate harm without doing my own exploration through feelings first. I found out that my feelings, even though they did not matter to me in the beginning, are extremely important to note in order to craft my unique ways of being of service and support to BIPOC communities. Through exploring my unconscious biases, My urgency to be right and good started to melt away, and my focus on taking steps toward racial equity in my own life, business, and community started to take shape. Relationships throughout my life began to take on a more nourishing feel because of the exploration I have done with Lisa's combination of guided prompts. No longer transactional, but true and authentic weavings of relationships that benefit all parties are what I look forward to cultivating now as I navigate through these trying times. I am so deeply grateful to Lisa for the work that she does and puts out into the world. And I highly recommend adding Lisa to the list of folks you support on Patreon. Thank you. And we're back with Andrew J. Lee, founder of Thought Partners International. And we're talking about why we shouldn't be surprised when someone who's super nice also has anger and rage deeply embedded within. And the opposite, that sometimes a jerk can act all nice and sweet and so on. So Andrea, as we look at the landscape now, we see that the whole issue around injustice, racial injustice, is front and center. And I think it will be for a very long time. And as a result, other social injustices are now rising up to the top as well. And so what do we do 
with good people who behave in abusive, oppressive, and racist ways? I think that it starts with the simple speaking out of truth. And I'll lean in in this moment, Lisa, to say, if each of us as individuals can look within and do that inner field trip that you advocate for so beautifully, look within and own the parts of us that are in whatever way, like for me, outing myself as having been a very verbally abusive person towards my husband. Just simply speaking that honest truth about ourselves to start with, and then finding the places and the times to say this about the external parts of our life that where those things show up. It's like, hey, that's not okay. We don't do that here. Simple statements of the fact are, to me, a needed beginning, and hopefully they're relatively accessible. We can't go anywhere until we know where we are, right? So just that, where are we now statement. When I came out in the Washington Post with my article about my abusiveness, that's yes, what... Yes, a very small platform. <laughs> right. Just so happened to have gotten picked up by them. It wasn't like, oh, hey, how can I do something terrible so I can be in the Washington Post? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm listening to the fact that they picked it up and I'm trying to follow that and what I'm doing next. So that's where I would start. And I know you do so much work in that too. I think that it may seem small, but it is like the seed that where everything else grows. It is. And it's interesting because the first thing that people do is they look external to themselves to do something, right? So we have companies that said, let's get rid of these slave era icons from our products mm-hmm. when Black Lives Matter started to erupt. Mm-hmm. But Black Lives Matter is saying, yeah, we just want you to stop killing us. <laughs> We just want you to treat us equally. Yeah. So there's all this action for, and I've seen it, like people put together lists, they'll attend the protests, Mm -hmm. but yet they won't go within, which is where Mm -hmm. the real change, well, it's part of change, external Mm -hmm. and internal. Mm -hmm. And so in your research, why are we so afraid to go within? Well, it's really dark and crazy in there sometimes. And I say that word crazy with intention, like we have mental health issues. We can't help but have mental health issues in a lot of cases. It is depressing and anxious to be a human. You may have always been, but I I don't know. I wasn't alive during those historical years. So I'll just speak for right now. I think we are rightfully cautious about opening the dark closets that contain depths, ancestral depths sometimes personal depths that without support, without some intelligence, without some intention, it can be quite chaotic to just dive in to our internal landscape. And I know you know that. Yes, yes. And that's why there has to also be care in how people are invited in to doing their internal work. Mm -hmm. A lot of care. And it's the difference between asking the question, how do you prop up white supremacy? Questions like that means that the person has to have some awareness of what that culture is. Mm -hmm. But a better question would be asking about 
anger? In what ways do you display anger? Or how has anger been displayed in your home? And my question to you now is, why do questions work so much better? And you are so masterful. Maybe I shouldn't even be using that word. You're very good. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to be aware of my words. Touche, yes. Yes. You're really good at asking the right questions. And I've seen how questions you ask, like it sucks the air out of the room and I sit there and I'm in awe. Mm. So how do we formulate good questions so that we can go within and explore with courage? And why do questions work? Mm-hmm. Well, you're very kind. Thank you. That means a lot coming from you, especially because I follow your questions so often, Lisa. I know you know that. <laughs> so it's very sweet to be sisters in questions in a way. <laughs> we are so committed to dialogue. I think one of the things I would love to share that relates to this is that I think when I really look within, my question asking really comes from a place of the agony, I'll say. It's like that physical feeling of agony of not knowing what the bleep is going on. (laughs) And in that highly pressurized, irrational, inexpressible (laughs) place, a question squeezes out almost like a piece of coal being pressured to produce something else. And so how does this apply to us practically? I would suggest this is kind of a personal mantra and it's okay to not know. Not knowing is a fertile field. Knowing is when we stop inquiring. And I like to say learning only happens when we don't know what to do. So don't know what to do better. And you'll get better questions. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that place of not knowing. Some see it as an emptiness, like a void. Mm. But that void is, as you said, is what produces some of the best questions that we could ask ourselves. Mm -hmm. I like the way you said that. It's like between the answer yes and no, that binary again. There is something else. There's a third way. And it's a fertile territory of not knowing. Only by not knowing can we come up with something new. I feel like that's applicable to each of us as a practice to try on today, but also applicable to the bigger conversations that we are all aching to have for humanity. How can we do something different? How can we surprise ourselves and and get off the tracks that we know are just not right? I think this is part of the answer. And so would you suggest that to deal with difficult conversations, difficult people, those who have a prickly, abusive background that questions can help to reach or get to the answer? Mm -hmm. I do. I do believe that. It's a bias of mine, (laughs) but it's a (laughs) conscious bias of mine. (laughs) I mean, obviously safety is very important. So I'm not saying like if someone is being terrible that you stop and say, can I ask you a question? Right, right, right. Common sense, right? Right, right. But before rushing to that person is a blank, oh, this is happening, et cetera, internally wondering, "Hmm, if I allow myself to, don't just allow myself, but if I require of myself to not know what might happen. What would happen? What would happen? (laughs) I was reflecting on what you were saying. (laughs) Yeah. Um, 
And so when I sit back to craft questions that my patrons work on in the community, like I don't have a book. I don't have something that says, this is the way to craft a good question. (laughs) And so how do we get into that habit of questioning rather than always reacting or coming from a place where we have to convince, convince, convince? What is the best way to develop our questioning skills? So that becomes the default. Yeah, like anything when we're creating a new habit, there are so many wonderful new scientific leaps about how to make a human do something that they want, (laughs) how we hold ourselves in a space to do something. So it's going to take time. And it's like any practice, repetition, connecting it to something like maybe when you're brushing your teeth, you're spending two minutes brushing your teeth each day. If you don't already have something else you're doing during that time, because I find lots of people are trying to do something when they're brushing their teeth these days. (laughs) But maybe during your brushing your teeth, like you're saying, all right, what am I going to do today? Or maybe it's at night, let's say, all right, what happened today? And what are five questions I can think of to ask myself about today? And it's very easy to start by using the five W's, right? Start with the five W's. But then try to go deeper than that. Why did this happen? How did this occur? When did I start feeling that way? Who could I talk to about this to feel better and et cetera? But then the question that I can leave everyone with, I think can help is very simple. It's a two-word question. What else? All right, what else? If you don't try to be certain in your mind, if you're not trying to solve a problem and you're allowing yourself to wonder, wonder out loud, what else? My bias is that everyone naturally has a wellspring of questions inside them. It's just that we have kind of put a board on top of that well and said, okay, well, here it's here, but we don't care. We're going to go off and try and conquer the world and not listen to this wellspring of questions. So it's really about returning to that innate questioning. Yeah. Return to that innate questioning. Love it. Love it. And so a suggestion again is to employ the five W's, go deeper as well and ask the question, what else? It's like that delta that you talk about, the delta between where we are and where we want to be Mm -hmm. and measuring what that looks like. Yeah. You mentioned the delta. Thank you for that. that. That is a model inside one of my books called We Need to Talk. And Actually, you reminded me that there is a chapter about questions and how to generate them. So if you're looking for a little extra, maybe boost or more structure, it could be that that chapter might help. And I'll definitely link to that in the show notes. So that'd be awesome. Yes, because it's a very good resource, but I'm biased. Everything (laughs) that you've produced is a very good resource. Thank you. You're very kind. And so ultimately, as we develop questions, would you say that that's one of the reasons why that you are, as I said before, like Gandalf, you're never too early, not too late. You're just in time Mm -hmm. that you can see the trend and talk about trends in coaching, trends in business building, and be able to share that Mm -hmm. in such a way so that I employ it and I know that I'm a year later, the market has caught up. Mm -hmm. So in other words, what I'm asking is, is a process of questioning, does that lead to our innovation? Definitely, yes. 
I mean, I think, Lisa, where you're pointing to is kind of glorious because it's a spot that I haven't looked quite like this at. And that is that I think when we, we ask questions with our mouth and our brain, that's one thing, that's one level. But at a certain point, you kind of take on a posture of questioning in your life. Almost like what happens when you sit at a desk too long, your head becomes bent over and your back curves and you become like a question mark. <laughs> but this like living life with a questioning posture, I think is the humble way of meeting life instead of walking into life, knowing everything. I think it's a humble way of meeting life and it can be cultivated and that when we do that, when for me, how it transpires is when I do that, Lisa, you give me too much credit because all I'm doing is receiving information. <laughs> it's like I'm like I have my hands out and like my fingertips are beep 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 <laughs> receiving data. <laughs> and then because my mind is open in this bowl-like, cup-like question mark way, I collect this information and then things pop out. I'm not fighting it is the thing, right? I'm not fighting it. And this goes counter to what the dominant culture says that we're supposed to do, which is to fake it till you make it. Act like you know until you actually do know. And then here you are saying, I come to the table or maybe the room. You go through the third door. (laughs) Hands are open. And so there's a sense of humility Mm -hmm. and perhaps slowing down Mm -hmm. and asking those deep questions that allow you to allow that influence to say, this is where you need to go. Yeah, thank you for that. I think that's very true. I think we need more of that. If humanity is making music, we need more quiet and we need more listening in between the notes. And we can choose to do that by walking into the room with our big ears open, asking questions, allowing more silence, slowing it down. So the cacophony has space to dissipate. And we can really hear what the notes that really matter. We can say, we choose these notes to take forward. I love the musical connection that you've made. Mm -hmm. Love it, love it. And as someone who plays the organ, I can relate. Yeah. Sometimes as I play, I'm hearing what I need to hear. And then on the foot pedals, I can play something else. Mm. And it's subtle. Mm those notes right so i can do a minor with my feet Mm. with the major chord Mm. and only the astute person listening can hear it yeah so i love that analogy yeah i love that too i love your music when it comes through and you talk about the organ and all it's so incredible i think that it is not a bad analogy for where we're going in the future yes it really is not a bad analogy and Maybe it's one that we can ask more questions about. (laughs) Mm, Love it. (laughs) Love it. And ultimately, at the end of the day, by questioning, we dream. And then when we dream, we can imagine what a future without bias looks like. Yes. Right. We need space in order to create that with our imagination. Beautifully said. I love that so much. Yeah. And so my last question to you, I love to ask all my guests this question. My question is this, what tips do you have to help us stumble bravely Mm -hmm. in our quest to become anti-bias, anti-racist, and anti-oppressive? 
Yeah, don't be afraid of not knowing and don't be afraid of the pain that that might cause. I think that that's another dominant culture lie and that is that pain is bad and suffering is to be avoided. This is definitely a bias of mine and comes through my Asian culture, but pain is an incredible teacher. And so I'm not wishing more pain on anybody and I'm definitely, you know, empathize with anybody who is feeling pain, but when we have agency over it and we feel the pain of the various oppressions that we are all witnessing and walking through, that and the not knowing together is really what for me transformed my life from being an abusive person to being someone who can no longer relate to that. That questioning and not knowing and being willing to suffer the pain of what my behavior was causing, that was the alchemy that changed me from an oppressor to a lesser oppressor, (laughs) a learning person, you know? Yes. And realizing, as you said before, that the nuance exists within us all. Yes. The nuance of being the oppressed and the oppressor. And I think that's a beautiful reminder for us to sit with. Yeah. Andrea, thank you for your wisdom and your words. And I always enjoy conversing with you. So thank you for spending this time with me. You are so welcome. And thank you for the space and the invitation to be so personal and slow down and ask the questions (laughs) and make the space and make music together with you and the community. It touches my heart. So thank you. I was in conversation with Andrea J. Lee, founder of Thought Partners International. You can find out more about Andrea including all the resources mentioned in this episode by going to www.innerfieldtrip.com. Search for episode five. My name is Lisa Renee Hall. Stumble bravely.